0: You know, trains don't eat, but they do. Choo-choo-choo!
1: This is the The Phantasmagorical Phantasmagorical Think Think Tank. Quarantine time. What better way to celebrate this quarantine than exploring our morbid curiosity. What's on track for today?
0: Today we're talking about the trolley problem. It's many variants and the moral solutions to the choices you should make when posed with it.
1: Oh boy. So I will say that, as Matt, you pointed out before we started recording, the trolley problem is indeed a very classic... Uh, philosophical dilemma. And so you, the listener, might have heard of it, but hopefully we can present some fun uh, spins on the the classic problem to pique your interest today. So Matt, would you kindly start us off with the brief history of trolleyology, as it's called? The
0: problem was first
1: devised by Philippa Foote
0: in 1967. It is a moral dilemma that presents you with several options. And it's meant to sort of parse out your moral code in the decision, based on the decisions you make in finding a solution to the problem.
1: And I will point out that uh, even though it's kind of spooky uh, because it has to do with death, uh, it's also extremely fascinating because no matter how you answer the dilemma, it says something about like your moral code and it says something about the merits and strengths and weaknesses, or at least the perceived strengths and weaknesses of different moral philosophies. So, uh, Matt, would you kindly provide like, the prototypical classic version?
0: You are at work at a railroad junction. You're that guy who pulls the lever that switches it from one track to the other. But you notice that the trolley is coming, and this one is a runaway trolley going at speeds that are definitely lethal if someone were to hit it. Oh no, there are five people tied to one side of the track. Currently, that is the direction the trolley is going, but you have the authority to pull the lever if you wish and redirect the trolley down a different path where only one person is tied to the track. Do you pull the lever?
1: So this is what's so beautiful about trolleyology, and by trolleyology I mean the field of philosophy dedicated to questions like these, because your actions say something about what kind of ethical, moral codes you find convincing.
0: In this case, it's a question of action versus outcome, and which is more important to you. In deontology, the focus is more on the action, where it's saying, if you were to say, pull the lever, your action is inherently evil because you're actively causing the one person to die, rather than passively letting five people die. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And while that's what uh, moral codes under the umbrella category of deontology say, there's another umbrella category called consequentialism. And this actually argues for precisely the opposite. They say, like, it doesn't really matter whether you actively did it or passively allowed it. What matters is, well, the consequences. That's, of course, why it's called consequentialism. That... One situation has the outcome of one person dead. The other situation has the outcome of five people dead. So it's surely better to do whichever minimizes the death toll independently of whether it was active or passive. So as you can see, it's really fascinating because it kind of says something about your moral values. Do you place emphasis on the intents and the methods or do you place them more on the consequences? And we can even muddle the waters. We'll get to this later, but like... You could say maybe intents and methods are instrumentally good because they have good consequences, but maybe consequences are only instrumentally good because good consequences inspire us to have good intentions and methods. See this is what's so cool. Isn't isn't this great? I feel kind of bad that I'm having so much fun in this terrifying thought experiment, but it's it's so it is so. I don't get to choose my emotions. How are you feeling at this juncture, Matt? Morally confused. And, yeah, uh, we mentioned the distinction between deontology and consequentialism. Uh, To provide, like, a crisp and clear definition, deontology are moral codes that deal with, like, crisp, specific, clear rules that we're supposed to follow, and the moral character of someone is measured by how well they follow those rules. While, in contrast, consequentialism is about... um, your effect on the world, and uh, the moral character of someone is measured by how much they benefit or harm the world. It might seem like there's a lot of overlap at first, and there is, but like when it comes down to like the core values, you'll realize that they're more or less opposites. So I guess I could ask you, my apologies if I'm putting you on the spot, but what would you do, Matt? Would you pull the lever?
0: Uh, I think it would be best to pull the lever, because... I see it also as uh, probabilistically you're more likely to hurt people if you don't pull the lever, not just in terms of the people who are on the tracks, but the people affected by them. Yeah, like the families that would be affected, like, say each person, each singular person had the same probability of having kids, then I'm less likely to hurt those kids also by just choosing the one person, even though there's still a chance that more, more people would be affected if I killed this one person because they might have a very large family compared to five single bachelors
1: yeah and uh I agree for the same reason that uh well you know me I spent an hour in episode 11 10 was it um talking about my qualia argument I would imagine that maximizing the emotional well-being of the situation is the best and so yes pull the lever. I am so very sad that the one individual would die, but I would be even more so very sad if the five individuals died. And according to uh, the BBC by this uh, article I have here that I guess we'll put in the footnotes, uh, 80 to 90% of people do pull the lever. So I guess we are, are in the majority there.
0: Now let's take a look at a similar problem, but with different conditions. You are on a bridge standing next to this person trolley is still headed to hit five people, but there's only one track. So it's definitely going to hit the five people if nothing is done. You can either push this person off the bridge, and you know that they, their body will stop the trolley, or you can let the trolley keep going, and it will hit the five people.
1: So here's what's interesting. Even though on the surface, it's precisely the same question, uh, kill one to save five or do nothing and let five die. Uh, I would place my bets that you, the listener, probably had a visceral reaction to the idea of pushing a man to his death in a way that you didn't with version 1. What's interesting is that it seems like the same exact logic applies as in the first scenario. Like, I'm gonna guess, if you're 80 to 90 percent of the population, you agreed with our reasoning, yeah, it's better to save the families of the five people from suffering than the one. But, Why is it that we are so appalled here, but not there?
0: One thing that a lot of people consider is it's very intangible when you're practically murdering someone, pulling a lever, rather than when you're physically pulling them off a bridge to their death. The actual act of feeling your hands on them, like the thought of it, and then pushing them over makes it feel more like a murder rather than when you had just pulled a lever, where it feels like it's just a consequence of an action that is not necessarily a murderous.
1: Oh, yeah. Like um, with uh, the meat industry, for example, like if you were to ask someone, would you be willing to kill a pig with a knife and eat it? Uh, A lot of people would say like, no, I'm probably not uh, okay with that. But if they were to ask, like, are you okay with someone else killing a pig and then him cooking it and you eating it? They would probably say, yeah, sure. And so I think you're right that probably part of the visceral change is like the immediateness of it. The fact that It's so, well, quite literally hands-on rather than one step removed.
0: In a bit, Scott and I will share our views on version 2 of the trolley problem, but in the meantime, Immanuel Kant has something to say.
1: Yeah, so uh, even though Kant died before this dilemma was proposed, his uh, philosophies and his ideas can still be applied to this situation. So one of the things Immanuel Kant was famous for, he was a deontologist, and he believed that one of the clear, crisp rules that you should never, ever break is never use a human as a mere means. And he basically said, like, humans have an intrinsic dignity to them, and so we can't simply use them as, like, a tool uh, for our own selfish ends or even our own any ends, uh, because to decrease a human being to a simple tool is a violation of their dignity. So Immanuel Kant or someone who has Kantian philosophies might say, yeah, pull the lever because you are saving the people and then those actions result as an externality in someone dying. It's called the principle of double effect. But in this second situation... You violating somebody's dignity is part of your plan, like you are deliberately violating someone's dignity as an intentional way of achieving your goals rather than achieving your goals which result in someone's dignity being violated. And so he says that distinction is why you should pull the lever but not push the person. However, uh, I will lay my cards on the table. I don't actually agree with this, and I have three counter-arguments, none of which are original to me. Uh, would you like to investigate them, Matt?
0: So, counter-argument one is, what if there were a thousand people who were going to get murdered by this barreling-down trolley, or a million people, or every child on the planet? I mean, to what extent does it ha- How many people need to be on the track where it's suddenly worth it? I mean... In this case, it's saying, what is the price of dignity of one person in terms of human life?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems a little bit implausible for Emmanuel Kant to say, like, yes, I would let the entire human race get wiped out so that I could save one person. Like, do does he really think that's worth it? I mean, I guess it's not like a slam dunk argument, but surely, like... I would imagine that a lot of people would have the same visceral reaction to letting the entirety of the human race die as they would to pushing the person. And so it kind of blurs the lines of which visceral reaction should we trust. With that, would you like to present uh, the second counter-argument?
0: So counter-argument two is the thought experiment of the, the extra track. So let's say going and you're still at a lever, just as you were before, working your job. When you pull the lever, you're just choosing a right or left path for it to take for a short period of time before converging back to the same track. And at the end of the convergence, there's still the five people. So on its current trajectory, it will take a track where it is unhindered and then converge with the other side and then hit the five people. Or you could pull the lever and it will switch tracks and be stopped by a person standing on the track who will die in the process, but it will stop the trolley, and the trolley will never make it to the convergence point, where it converged with the other side of the track, and then killed the five people. So the five people in this case are safe, but the one person is used specifically for stopping the trolley.
1: And the reason why this is a counter-argument is because Kant would probably generally agree, or at least Kantian philosophers would generally agree, that we should pull the lever in the first scenario. And so this is precisely the same as the first scenario, but with an extra few feet of of metal beams and wooden planks that the trolley will never run over anyway. But you are using the person you would kill as a tool in this situation. So the question is, like, why on earth would the presence or absence of a few feet of extra track affect who's going to live or die? That seems a little bit arbitrary. And I should also point out that Kantian philosophers have proposed counter counter arguments to this but I would imagine that in philosophy every conversation point is a rabbit hole that could hypothetically go on for all eternity with counter 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 arguments so it's best we step out while we can. So Scott we've presented
0: two versions uh, or two new versions here of the trolley problem the one on the one where you're on the bridge and the one where you're back on the track but the track separates and then converges again so looking at let's say the bridge one first, what would you do in that situation? What do you think your solution is?
1: Yeah, so in this situation, I'd have to break it up into two mini situations. The first of which would be like in a vacuum, like this hypothetical scenario where everybody is sort of perfectly rational. Everybody thinks in the same uh, moral system that I think. So in that perfect world, I would say, I mean, yeah, it would be the same uh argument kill the one save the five Uh, but that being said we don't live in a a perfect world where everyone's perfectly logical and rational and thinks the same way Uh, we live in a world where we're humans and we have these biases and like i said we have these visceral reactions i'll expand uh, upon this in a bit but basically if this were to actually happen in real life where we're not uh, machines and thought experimenters we're actually living breathing humans with biases I would actually say no, don't physically push the person because the amount of terror and horror that humanity would experience if that were the general thing, like if we lived in a society where it was okay to throw people off the bridges, that would be kind of terrifying and horrifying for people. And so the amount of misery we would experience from living in that society wouldn't be worth the select few times when we would actually experience dilemmas such as that. So in summary... In a perfect world, yes, push the person because it's a 1 instead of 5. But in the actual world, I don't think we're quite ready for that. So I would say for now, take the L in the short term because it's beneficial in the long term. Whew, so that was horribly uh, loquacious of me. I think I should turn it over to you and say, what are your thoughts? And do you agree with my own argument?
0: Uh, I agree with what you're saying. I feel like just personally, I've, I couldn't push someone off the bridge like that. Uh, so I feel like for me, it's more of that, um, the physicality and direct, uh, as I was saying, the, the direct implication of murder that's associated with it rather than the consequence. But yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from and how the thought that if that was the norm, it would shift societal views to be uh, more, afraid of of what the possibilities were yeah
1: oh yeah i think you actually bring up a good point that like whether you think it's a good idea when someone sort of explains it out to you while we're sitting in the comfortable uh comfy chairs in our own homes like what we think is a good idea outside of the actual moment might be very different than what we actually do in the moment when our heart is racing and it's actually right in front of us i think you're right that like If I was actually in that situation, I would not be able to bring myself to do it, even though I think in a vacuum with perfectly rational people, it would be the moral thing to do. So moving the bridge behind, what are your thoughts on the loop variant?
0: I think once again, I feel like in reality, it would be easier to do the loop variant, just like taking it back to the first problem. I feel like I would make the same decision as I would in version one or the typical trolley problem version. Just because I don't agree with what Kant says at all. I don't necessarily associate humans being used in a certain manner as a lack of their dignity, otherwise I feel like occupations would be a lack of their dignity. But I do understand how he's saying in this case it's
1: against their will, but also I think you actually do bring up a good point because it's kind of unclear at what point a means transitions into a mere means like Kant might say like if you hire someone to do a job but treat them nicely and respectfully then you're using them as a means but not a mere means but I think you bring up a good point like what is the line between a means and a mere means if I say like if I think I want my rose bush to be trimmed so I hire a gardener and I pay him in that situation, the gardener is just a tool in my plan to have high-quality garden roses. And even if I do pay him, does that count as a mere means? And if so, like, what exactly is the distinction?
0: Yeah, exactly. Like, to what point is someone becoming a tool in this case? And if they're saving the lives anyways. this it, To me, version 3, when you take away the Kantian definition of making people as mere means, is simply the same as version 1. Uh, how about you? What do you think? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, you know me. I'm of the utilitarian mindset. So in my mind, it doesn't matter like the order of events that happened. what matters is like, did people die? Like whether or not somebody dies is what's important. And so I would rather have one person die than five people die. And yes, I suppose I am using that person as a tool. But surely from the perspective of the person, if I could have explained it all to him uh, before I turned the lever he would agree that like yeah it's sort of my moral obligation in in this situation to die heroically knowing that I died saving five other people so in summary yeah I act in such a way that minimizes the death toll because what's important is not having innocent people die so I would pull the lever
0: so going on to um, our fourth version of the trolley problem this one actually contradictory to what I just said does not include a trolley at all but Imagine you're a doctor and you have five people who are about to die due to organ failure of different organs, each vital to their survival. Uh, it's imminent that they're going to die, and you know of one person specifically who is perfectly healthy, and you have one person who is perfectly healthy and has a perfect condition working organs for all five organs you would need, but this person also does not want to die just as the other five who have organ failure do not want to die. So is it right for you to perform surgery on this person to harvest their organs and transplant them to the five people so you can save five lives at the cost of one person who now is missing all of those vital organs?
1: Yeah, so this, I should point out, is designed to be a critique of the utilitarian mindset, which basically says, like, Yo, Scott, if you you want to pull the lever because five lives are better than one, then surely you should murder this innocent person as she screams, No, help, please, I want to live! And then rip her organs out of her body and cram them into these people who are going to die anyway. That just sounds appalling. That sounds disgusting. Surely, utilitarianism is a horrendifying moral theory. You see, I just fused together horrendous and terrifying into one. It's stupendifying. That's stupendous and stupefying in one. Anyway, I've totally digressed. So yeah, as you, the listener, might think, like, you might have pulled the lever, but probably this is the most visceral reaction of them all. Like, you, the listener, would probably be mortified to be a doctor and murder someone and steal their organs but what reason do you have to pull the lever in the first situation but to not steal the organs in this version? So when it came to the bridge scenario, I mentioned that there were certain human biases that uh, skew the situation. So I think now is a good time to sort of lay them all out and explain in detail what exactly they are and why I think they affect my actions in the real world versus a hypothetical situation. Matt, take it away.
0: So the first one is distance bias. This sort of goes back to what I was saying about the, the physical feeling of pushing someone. So we naturally think that tangible, immediate things are more valuable than intangible things. So dying as a disease of, of a disease or organ failure is not tangible to someone. You're not seeing it right in front of you. But opening someone up with a scalpel and then taking out all the organs is very tangible. It's physically there, just like pushing someone off the bridge was a more tangible uh, murder. So there's this irrational value that we put on the murder of these five people by passively not doing anything than the physical act of cutting someone up.
1: Yeah, I think that's important because like whether I kill someone by pulling a lever or whether I kill someone by ripping them open with a scalpel, I've killed the person either way. As a direct consequences of my intended actions, it's just like the methods that we sort of irrationally find a scalpel to be worse than a lever, even though from like a a computer's perspective, they would be the same. It's it's one person dead either way. The second bias I'd like to point out is psychic numbing. So... We naturally, and this is so very counterintuitive, but it's true, we naturally put less value on groups of people than we do on individuals. Like, if I tell you two people died yesterday, you would actually have a less empathetic reaction than if I said someone died yesterday. So when I talk about a person who is healthy, who does not want to die, you, the listener, imagine a face. You imagine a personality, a psyche, a, a consciousness. Uh, While when I say five people, we naturally sort of imagine five stick figures or five dots or place markers or even like the number five. And so we naturally respond less empathetically to like the number five than we do to a face with a person and a body and just a consciousness. And so for that reason, we're more inclined to save the one and kill the five because of this psychic numbing phenomenon. And Matt, do you want to explain the final and most convoluted of them all? So the final one is
0: status quo bias, which simply put is we as people just like it when the status quo is maintained, when it's not, when there's no large thing in effect trying to fight it. There's no reason to change the status quo, it feels. Uh, in the trolley problem, we're thinking the people are already on the track, and some are either set to die or live. So on this spectrum, having someone tied to a track with the trolley barreling down at them or on a track next to them is relatively is a relatively small shift based on what the status quo is, which is barreling trolley tied to a track on this dead or alive spectrum. In contrast, when we're looking at the patients, most there's the five who are Certain at uh, the certain death end of the spectrum, and the other person who is very well alive, not anywhere near the death side of the spectrum. So to shift the status quo so much by making one person certain death and the other five, uh, perfectly healthy based on their condition and the solution we provide, giving them organs, is uh, against this status quo bias that we have in our head of, but. It was so different before.
1: Yeah, building off of that, like, with the original situation, like, our choices between which people who are tied to the track die by getting a trolley run over them. And so either situation, there's very little change in the status quo. But in this one, it's like, should you let people die of diseases and people die of diseases all the time so you're used to that and there's not a big change? Or should you do the opposite of what you expect a doctor to do? You expect a doctor to heal people but instead murder this person. Like now that's a total fundamental uproot of what you expect out of society. So I'd like to point out how those biases tie in. Like I said, if we lived in sort of a perfect world where everybody was utilitarian, where everybody uh, was perfectly rational, I think it would be a good idea because from the perspective of the healthy person, that person would say, oh yeah, it's my moral obligation to die heroically knowing I went out with a bang saving five people from certain doom and I went out heroically saving all these people's families. Um, But because of these biases like if imagine if we were to actually do that in real life like 300 million americans would be terrified that this is acceptable in their american medical system no one would trust doctors or be willing to go to their checkup appointments for fear of being stolen and kidnapped and murdered no one would be happy living in this society and so because the most important thing is making sure people are happy in the long term i would say take the L in the short term that is let the five people die to take the dub in the long term that is a generally happy society but that being said if someday many years in the future perhaps we acquire some like cyborg implants where we all become perfectly rational then I would say if in that situation it would be a good idea to kill the one save the five so now I'll turn the tides over to you Matt um Agree? Disagree? Build? Expand? New arguments? What is going on in the beautiful uh, clockwork mechanism that is your mind?
0: I think in a practical sense, another problem that arises that I feel like you didn't touch on was it would disincentivize people to maintain that health standard. Because you're suddenly put more, looking back at the dead or alive spectrum, by being healthy you're more dead than alive in, in this scenario.
1: Oh, yeah, like the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Like in this society, people would think like, oh, I can smoke away. It doesn't matter because then I can steal the lungs of the healthy person. Yeah, I think that's that's actually a very important point. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, but in the, like I said, like in the
0: theoretical sense, I'd, I'd very much see where you're coming from in the utilitarian perspective. Um... Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's actually going to... Your point is so convincing. I might need to go back and say, like, yeah, even in a perfectly rational society, you could still have selfish rational people because here's something I didn't point out that utilitarianism is far from being the only consequentialist moral theory we utilitarians uh, are on the other side of the fence from the egoists darn those egoists we utilitarians can't stand those egoists where utilitarianism says it's the well-being of humanity as a whole that's important while the egoists say it's the well-being of me and just me and I don't care about you that's important Yep, well, I'll have to go back to the drawing board after after we record this. So I did go back to the drawing board. And in fact, I'm splicing in this audio after the fact. So I won't tell you my full thought processes, but I will tell you my conclusions, because perhaps I'll save the processes for a later episode. So my conclusion is no, a perfectly rational person cannot be selfish, because I might go so far as to say that moral selfishness or egoism is actually a self-contradictory concept. Uh, But even so, I think Matt does bring up a really good reason for why my in-a-vacuum answer is different than my in-reality answer because even though perfectly rational beings wouldn't be selfish, the fact of the matter is, well, there are selfish people. Generally speaking, a society that doesn't reward selfishness and punish healthy people is going to be much, much happier than a society that rewards selfishness and punishes happy people. So overall, I'm going to keep to my original answer. One last thing. Technically, utilitarianism isn't about the well-being of the whole of humanity so much as it is the well-being of all sentient beings. Um, There are two subtle morally relevant distinctions there that I'll address in later episodes. Now, back to the show. So... Uh, trolleyology is a beautiful rabbit hole where there are hypothetically like an infinite number of fun crazy wonky thought experiments we can do let's transition on to a fifth version of the trolley problem and as you can probably imagine we can just create trolley problems upon trolley problems all day long to your heart's content but uh, due to the finite amount of time in our episodes we'll just keep it to a half dozen or so
0: so version 5 will take us back to the classic version 1 setup lever, you can pull it. It's your job to pull it. Five people on one side, one person on the other side. But lo and behold, you look, and that person
1: on the other side is your mom. And she looks you in the eyes and says, no, child, please don't kill your own mother. What do you do? So I think this one is particularly heartstring pulling because up to this point we can sort of tangibly and one step remove say like, yeah, generally speaking, net misery ought to be minimized. But what if it's increase your own misery at the the benefit of minimizing net misery? Would you be okay killing five strangers for one of your mother's? And would you be okay saving your own mother, killing five other people's mothers, five strangers whom you will never meet that equally love their mom as much as you love yours? Matt, I'm gonna ask you the hard question: Would you pull the lever?
0: Well, I know I feel like what a, one of the key points of my first answer was: you don't know who else is affected and who's like who has a family. The six strangers scenario, where it's five on one side and one on the other. Each one has an equal chance, per se, of having a family. But here you know everyone who is going to be affected if you pull the lever, because they're also your family who are affected. But there's still the imp- the the probabilities equally likely of all the people who are affected by pulling the lever and killing the five, except it's now multiplied by five. So I feel like it would be reasonable to pull the lever in
1: this case. As morbid as it might sound, I think I agree that it would be super de-duper tough because I tremendously love my mother, but I have to sort of be the bigger guy here and say even though I love my mother tremendously, there are a lot of other people who also love their mothers as much as I love my mother. Like there's this great word from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, sonder. Sonder is basically like The realization that every other person on the face of the planet also has a fully fleshed out life that is equally vivid and complex as your own. That like when you stare out uh, onto a city freeway at night, like every single light of a car has someone who also has as lengthy a backstory as you. And so when you put it in that perspective and you say like, yeah... There is also someone who has also lived for decades who has also done a series of actions that have led him and his mother up to this point and also desperately doesn't want his mother to die. I would say, yeah, pull the lever and save the five mothers instead of the one, even though it would, of course, be tremendously hard.
0: I also think another thing to consider in this case would be taking your own parent away versus taking someone else's parent away out of like what that person whose parent is taken away is thinking. I mean, sure, you don't know if any of them are parents, but it's still that thought of, oh, you thought just because it's your parent, they're suddenly worth more than my parent.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think this goes back to like distance bias, where like we assume that our love of our mother is more important than his love of his mother, even if that's like demonstrably not true. Yeah. Let's move on to version six. So this is actually a real life example. So back in the 20th century, the California speed limit was uh, 55 miles per hour. But of course, in modern day, it is 65 miles per hour. And so this itself is kind of a trolley problem where basically... Because the speed limit is higher, there's the argument that there are more dangerous car crashes because two cars uh, smacking into each other at 65 is going to be uh, significantly more force than 55. And so this is sort of a trolley problem where we have a dilemma. Should we lower the death rates at the cost of hundreds of millions of people being inconvenienced or should we convenience hundreds of millions of people at the cost of a few deaths how horribly morbid but uh it's important and
0: i think an, another thing to consider here is the ratio of like, if you had the perfect if you had the ratios of how many people would die for the speed limit at what point do you say ah yes this is the uh, the optimal speed limit to set
1: oh yes i think you bring up a very good point like how do you possibly say like yes this is the ideal death to convenience ratio And another thing is we shouldn't, like, downplay the role of convenience. Like, consider if you're a a trucker and you have to drive cross-country taking some shipment of of food or, like, let's say rice because I like rice. If you're driving at 55 miles an hour instead of 65, that means over the course of a year you can do fewer shipments, which means, like, say if you're shipping to an underprivileged, low-income town, that means... Every year they get fewer shipments of food, which means less supply, which means higher prices. And so, like, if you raise the speed limit by 10 miles an hour, that means a low-income community gets less expensive food. And so it kind of poses this question, like, is having more people die in car crashes worth giving access to affordable food? Darn, like, this is a pretty darn quality thought experiment it really pulls at our heartstrings also i don't have like a tangible clear answer like with the trolley problem all of the consequences are very obvious immediate and understandable it's like one dead or five dead but with this it's it's kind of vague you know like what are the benefits of having a higher speed limit what are all the intangible benefits of being convenienced in your life
0: if there was like a speed let's say 20 miles per hour where the Death toll was practically zero as long as everybody followed the speed and no pedestrians were hit like and car to car collisions only wayss um if it's only twenty miles per hour is the are the effects of that significant drop in the speed limit worth the fact that nobody dies?
1: Ooh. let us move on to another practical example, and that is self driving cars so uh Matt, you alluded to this uh outside of recording earlier but basically when we have ai a self-driving tesla if it's barreling down the street perhaps some perhaps its brake failed or its uh, acceleration gets locked on maximum should it be programmed to swerve to the five or swerve to the one or even more uh, gut-wrenching if it has a choice between killing the driver or killing five bystanders should it save the bystanders or the driver So one argument that I've heard um, about whether we should program it to save the driver or save the pedestrians is, well, neither. The argument for why we shouldn't program a self-driving car to constantly be on the lookout for trolley problems is the same reason we don't systematically uh, test everybody for HIV all the time, and that is false positives. So basically, I'll I'll make an analogy with HIV. And that is the odds that an HIV test will tell a healthy person that he has HIV is actually something like I want to say 10 times higher than uh, the percentage of humans who actually have HIV. And so that's why you only want to test it if you have a generally good uh, indicator that you might have it because like, it would be horribly inefficient to test 300 million people, and 90% of those tests are actually just false positives, they're dead ends. Okay, I just fact-checked myself. It depends on your demographic and the region you're in, but in the UK, for example, false positives are approximately three times more likely than an actual identification. So it's sort of the same thing here, where if you really think about it, the odds that anyone will ever run into a trolley problem are actually quite low and so if you're programming a computer to constantly look out for situations such as these I would imagine that the frequency that it would misunderstand the situation like uh, perhaps it sees cardboard boxes and mistakes it for a wall or sees a cardboard cutout or like a photo of someone on a billboard and mistake it for a human the odds of that happening would actually be higher than legitimate trolley problems. If I arbitrarily uh, choose a 9 to 1 ratio for no purpose other than simplicity, if 90% of the time it's actually just a misunderstood trolley problem and only 1 out of 10 times it's a legitimate trolley problem, it would probably act in an unnecessarily dangerous way 90% of those situations and would like kill someone to save nobody because it misunderstood the situation. So when it comes to self-driving cars, in summation, it's probably best to just not program it that way at all Uh, and take, and I have said this several times before, but take the loss in the short term so that you can generally have a success in the long term. As I've said to Matt, today I feel particularly loquacious and that the number of syllables it takes to convey my point seems to be much higher than usual. I
0: think another problem with the trolley problem with self-driving cars is the, in a practical buyer sense, If you know that your car is going to choose to save five pedestrians over you, why would you buy that car? Like, why would I buy a car that, if it had to choose, would let me die?
1: Hmm, yeah. Yeah, darn human selfishness. Those darn egoists. You see, that's why we utilitarians don't (laughs) like egoists.
0: Darn egoists. But would you buy a car if you knew that if it was in a... Very dangerous trolley problem situation it would just let you die rather than uh maybe swerve off and accidentally hit five pedestrians
1: i would i would rather die knowing i did the right thing than live knowing i was responsible for five deaths
0: are you responsible if your car is on autopilot though
1: Mm -hmm. if i bought the car knowing that was its program and if i Turned it on autopilot, knowing it was going to make that kind of decision. I would say I was okay. Well, I guess I should turn around uh, the question and ask, what would you do? Would you buy such a car?
0: Yeah, I think I would buy the car that lets me die rather than the five people. Um, it just seems like the more reasonable thing to do, and I, I feel like I can't hold it. I mean, yes, I'm dead, but I can't hold it against the car because the car made a choice that I feel like
1: I would hopefully have made. Yeah, if you were the car, you would have made the same choice.
0: Yeah. Like, if I like, I get it, car. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. No hard feelings, Mr. Car. You did what you had to do. Yeah.
1: So this conversation has been a-, a tad morbid, so I would imagine a good way to end it off would be with some lighthearted humor. Uh, You can imagine that since the trolley problem has been so impactful onto the minds of philosophers that there's been a lot of parodies of it, like jokes. Would you like to explain the hedonistic trolley problem?
0: So there are two tracks, one of which is a flat, ordinary track with no people on it. And the other one is a track with five people on it, each separated throughout this loop-de-loop within the track. So your options are don't kill anybody or see the trolley do the loop-de-loop.
1: <laughs> yeah, and so if you enjoy morbid humor, this one pleases me. Like, imagine the dilemma holding the lever and be like, but but if I save the people, it won't do this totally sick loop-de-loop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, yeah, yes, like, the idea of having one's priorities be so wildly warped is just pleasing to... Well, well it's not pleasing, but it's humorously pleasing. Oh, well, any um, uh, finishing remarks on this conversation?
0: Uh, I guess I just want to point out that for a lot of these or for a lot of these, I guess I just want to point out that there might not necessarily be a right answer, and it's not so much uh, a question of what is for certain the right thing to do, but more so a diagnostic of what you believe in based on what you choose to be the right thing to do. And this has been The The Phantasmagorical Think
1: Tank.